Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode: Sherlock Holmes versus Joseph Smith, or Book of Mormon origins and the process of elimination. Tonight, I want to talk about a Mormon apologetic theory that has risen as of late, the purpose of which is to prove that the Book of Mormon really is divine, really is inspired, really is from God, and really was produced through angelic ministration and translation through the gift and power of God. The apologists have been trying to prove that true for a long time. But unfortunately, as more and more information is discovered about ancient history, both in the Old World and in the New, the quest to prove the Book of Mormon true by rational argument and evidence continues to recede beyond the apologist's grasp, like chasing the end of the rainbow. Because of that, around 20 years ago or so, the apologist came up with a new idea. And that idea was not to prove the Book of Mormon true, but to prove that all the naturalistic explanations for the coming forth of the Book of Mormon are not true, with the idea in mind that once you have eliminated the competition, the only man standing, i.e. the divine explanation for the Book of Mormon, must be correct. And of course, this is where Sherlock Holmes comes in with one of his two most famous quotes. This is where he is describing to Watson his process of elimination. When you have eliminated the impossible, says Sherlock Holmes, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Now, that is a wonderful statement. It is axiomatic that that is correct. Indeed, once you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And this is the tack the apologists are taking, or at least trying to take, with this particular argument. I first heard this kind of argument around 20 years ago, I believe it was, from Daniel C. Peterson. I don't know if he originated the idea, but that was where I heard it first. And more recently, Brian Hales has picked up the baton and continued to run with it. This seems to be one of the mainstays of Brian Hales' arguments as it relates to the Book of Mormon. A little over a year ago, he was on Rick Bennett's Gospel Tangents show, making this argument, and that is how I knew that it is still alive and kicking in the Mormon apologetic world. Because of that, I thought it might be a good idea to take a little time today and talk about this theory and why it is that it is not all that it is cracked up to be. In fact, this particular methodology has so many holes in it as to render it completely unworkable and useless. But you have to go a little bit below the surface to realize that, at least I did. On the surface, when you're invoking Sherlock Holmes and talking about the way this theory works, it sounds like a good idea. It has a patina of legitimacy to it, but it is only a patina. And once again, we'll find out that once we get past the surface, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. So let me detail this theory for you from the apologist's side. I've already said that there are a certain number of naturalistic explanations for how the Book of Mormon came forth. And on the other hand, there is the church's position that it came forth through divine means. So naturalistic explanation versus supernatural explanation. Here are the different naturalistic explanations for the origin of the Book of Mormon from 1829 to the present that Brian Hales has identified. They are six in number. The first is 
The original manuscript of the Book of Mormon was written by Solomon Spaulding. Number two, collaborators helped Joseph Smith create the text. Number three, Joseph Smith's mental illness enhanced his writing ability. Number four, automatic writing. Joseph functioned as a spirit medium while dictating the Book of Mormon. Number five, Joseph Smith, perhaps with help from his environment, the Bible, and other books, was capable of producing the Book of Mormon from his own intellect. And more recently, since William Davis came forth with his book, Visions in a Seer Stone, where Davis argues that Joseph Smith used commonly known techniques of ministers in Joseph Smith's day in order to produce the Book of Mormon as a dictated text. That is now number six on the list that Brian Hales has compiled of naturalistic explanations for the Book of Mormon. So the idea then is to go through each of those six naturalistic explanations, show that they are not true, and if you can eliminate all six of the naturalistic explanations, then, so the argument goes, the church's position that the Book of Mormon is divine must be correct. Now, the first thing to note is that this methodology, of course, shifts the burden of proof. Generally, the burden of proof is on the person making the claim, the church making the claim that the Book of Mormon is of divine origin. That burden would naturally fall on the church or its apologists. What this methodology does is shift the burden of proof over to the advocates of naturalistic explanations for the Book of Mormon and demanding that they prove that their explanation is the correct one. What this allows the apologists to do is to puppy guard their pet theory from examination. And indeed, you can see that if you use this type of methodology in any other context, that's exactly what's happening. Your pet theory is puppy guarded, is safeguarded, is blocked off from any kind of discussion, any kind of examination, any kind of critique. And what you've done now is put the other theories, the competing theories, in the hot seat, and those are the ones that have to prove their merits. And if they can't, then your theory, which was never discussed, by the way, and never talked about, must be correct. Now, one might think that the reason for this is because the Book of Mormon is incapable of being proven divine, and the manner in which it came forward incapable of being proven to be by the gift and power of God. Indeed, we would think that if the apologists could prove their case, they would have done it a long time ago and not be engaged in these kind of apologetic games like this theory amounts to. But they haven't done that. They haven't proven their case, which makes me think that even the apologists are starting to see the light, that they can't prove their case, that the Book of Mormon is divine, and the futility of pursuing that any further. Now, in reality, the idea that the Book of Mormon is divine in origin and all the bells and whistles that go along with it, with Joseph Smith having an angel appear to him, show him the location of the plates, his grabbing the plates after four years and translating them by putting a rock in a hat, indeed the same rock and the same hat that Joseph Smith used, or at least the same method he used to find buried treasure, which actually he never found, but still it's the same method. That theory that the church holds is the least likely of any of the naturalistic theories. So if you take these six naturalistic theories and put it over here to one side, and the theory that the church posits that the Book of Mormon is divine over here on the other side, and you start ranking them as to which is the most likely and which is the least likely, the Book of Mormon being produced by supernatural means 
is the least likely, at least in my opinion, of any of the theories. Put another way, any naturalistic theory, however unlikely, is astronomically more likely than the church's position on the theory of how the Book of Mormon came into existence. Now, the church's theory of divine origins for the Book of Mormon is not only the least likely because of angelic and divine intervention, as I mentioned before, but it is also the least likely because the Book of Mormon contains so much material that is readily identifiable as coming from early 19th century America. And indeed, even faithful Mormon historians such as Richard Bushman and Patrick Mason and Terrell and Fiona Givens have acknowledged either tacitly or explicitly that the Book of Mormon does indeed contain a plethora of early 19th century American material. But, but... That fact never comes out as you proceed with the current methodology, the process of elimination methodology that we're talking about today. You see, you never talk about the Book of Mormon. You never talk about the fact that it contains all this 19th century material. You never talk about the anachronisms because you never talk about the Book of Mormon's contents or its manner of production. That's the beauty of this methodology. So really what ends up happening is that the apologist takes the least likely scenario. And let's stop talking about it for a second as naturalistic versus divine theories, okay? Because really, they're all just theories about how the Book of Mormon came into existence. Whether it's natural, whether it's divine, they're all theories. And as I look at these theories and rank them, the divine theory of the Book of Mormon's coming forth is the least likely of any of the other theories. Now, people may differ with me on that. That's fine. You're certainly welcome to do that. But in my opinion, it's the least likely theory. So now, for the sake of argument, let's assume that the divine origin of the Book of Mormon really is the least likely theory. And then let's see how that works its way out through applying this methodology. If indeed the divine origin theory of the Book of Mormon is the least likely theory, then what you have done is you have taken the least likely theory and shielded it from any kind of critical analysis. You're puppy guarding it. Nobody can talk about it. You can only talk about the more likely theories. And if you can punch a hole in each of the more likely theories, then you end up with a very strange situation of proving that the least likely of all the theories must be the correct theory. That is one of the fundamental flaws in this methodology, is that it allows for the situation to occur where the least likely theory ends up being the correct theory. And indeed, that's exactly what happens as I see Brian Hales pursue this line of inquiry and methodology. He ends up justifying and validating the least likely theory. And when you have a methodology that justifies and validates the least likely theory, then it's a good hint that your methodology is flawed and maybe you should go back to the drawing board. Now let me just say a word about poking holes in each of the naturalistic theories. Brian Hales is able to do that, although he has trouble with automatic writing, I have to admit to you, we did a Mormonism Live on that exact issue about a month ago. He doesn't do a very good job with automatic writing, but he does do an okay job with each of the other naturalistic theories of poking holes in them. And the reason he can do that is because the evidence, the historical record on the subject is not univocal. It does not speak with one voice. It has different accounts from different people and even different accounts from the same people all over the place. So there is no theory under the current state of the historical background on this issue. There is no theory that doesn't contradict 
some of the evidence and therefore have the ability to have holes poked in it. I just want to make that clear. Yes, there is no theory about the Book of Mormon coming forth or precious little else in Mormon history where any theory that's presented won't have contradictory evidence to it because the evidence is all over the place. So it's no great feat to be able to poke holes in any naturalistic theory or indeed of any supernatural theory of the Book of Mormon. But I'm getting ahead of myself on that and we'll get to that in a few minutes. Another problem with this methodology and using the statement by Sherlock Holmes in order to justify it is that Sherlock Holmes once again stated when you have eliminated the impossible, and I'm going to emphasize that word impossible right now, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Now that's correct, but that is only correct if every other possibility has been eliminated because it is impossible, not just because it is unlikely. This phrase does not work if you say when you have eliminated the unlikely, whatever remains however improbable must be the truth. And that's because if you show something is unlikely, you haven't eliminated it completely as required by this maxim. Instead, you have just shown that it's not likely, not that it's not possible. So going back to each of these six naturalistic theories identified by Brian Hales, try as he might, he is not able to prove that any of them are impossible, only that, and this is the best case scenario, only that each of them is unlikely in various degrees. If you show that six alternate theories are merely unlikely in various degrees, you haven't proven that your theory is correct because you have not eliminated the alternate theories as impossible. Now the supernatural theory promoted by the church is extraordinarily unlikely. Some would say it is impossible, but I don't know that I would go that far. What I would say is that the story told by the church is, statistically speaking, astronomically unlikely. In other words, this kind of thing doesn't happen every day, and in fact, very rarely does an angel appear to somebody, and only once in history has an angel appeared to show somebody where gold plates are buried and then permitted the person to find them and translate them, not by looking at the plates, but by putting his face in a hat and dictating, using the same stone he earlier used in treasure digs to find buried treasure, comma, none of which he ever actually found, period. So the likelihood of the church's theory being correct, even if we accept it as possible, is vanishingly remote. In fact, you could say it's a one-off. It's happened only once in the entire history of the world. Now, if it did happen with Joseph Smith, at least this would seem to have to be the apologetic position. So that suggests to my mind a thought experiment. And here's the thought experiment. Out of all six of these naturalistic explanations, choose the one that you personally find to be the least likely. And once you found the least likely explanation that is naturalistic, compare it to the church's supernatural explanation for the Book of Mormon and see which of the two is the most likely. My point of view is that even if you take the least likely naturalistic explanation for the Book of Mormon, it is going to be astronomically more likely than the church's position. So for instance, if I were to do this thought experiment for me, I would take the least likely of the naturalistic theories, which to my mind is probably the Solomon Spaulding theory. This theory requires a second missing manuscript and secret visits by Sidney Rigdon to Joseph Smith for the religious parts of the Book of Mormon. At least that's the understanding I have of one particular permutation of the Solomon Spaulding theory. 
This seems extremely unlikely because there seems to be little to support it and on the other hand, evidence that contradicts it. First off, the original manuscript was found and it turned out it had little to nothing to do with the Book of Mormon, which then led proponents of that theory, undaunted by this discovery, to postulate that there had been a second manuscript, which remains missing to this day, which does look a lot more like the Book of Mormon than the original manuscript. You can see why I consider this to be unlikely. Not only that, there is no historical record that Sidney Rigdon ever met Joseph Smith before the church was organized. Indeed, it looks like the first time he met him was probably 1831. So you can see that the Solomon Spaulding theory becomes, at least in my mind, more and more unlikely to be correct. But, and this is an important but, regardless of how unlikely the Solomon Spaulding theory may be, it is astronomically more likely to be correct than the LDS theory of how the Book of Mormon was produced. This is the problem when apologists try to enter the lists of statistics and probabilities in order to prove their case. They don't get to shift to the spirit or faith in the middle of the conversation like Brian Hales is wont to do. They have to stick with statistics. They have to dance with the one that brought them. Now, any of these naturalistic theories, even the weakest, is astronomically more likely to be correct than the LDS theory, statistically speaking. And not only that, let's postulate something else now. We know that Brian Hales has identified six naturalistic explanations for the production of the Book of Mormon, and he feels that he has demolished each of the six. And let's just say, for the purpose of argument, though it's not correct, that if Brian Hales has put holes in all of these arguments, and if that means that the Book of Mormon being produced by supernatural means is the only theory left standing and everything is wonderful, and the Book of Mormon has been proven true, there's still a problem. And that problem is that someday, maybe sooner, maybe later, somebody else may come up with a seventh naturalistic theory as to how the Book of Mormon was produced. And that seventh naturalistic theory may account for the evidence better than any of the prior six. We don't know what that would be because it hasn't been discovered yet. But hear me out. Here's the problem. The possibility that a seventh naturalistic theory could be created in the future that accounts for the evidence better than the other six naturalistic theories, the possibility of this creation or discovery of a seventh theory, just that possibility is astronomically more likely than the church's position on how the Book of Mormon was produced. Indeed, we know that this list of naturalistic theories went from five to six recently because of an additional theory that was produced by William Davis in his book, Visions in a Seer Stone. So this isn't something that's just speculative. This has happened even recently, and I think we can expect that it will continue to happen in the future. More and more theories will be presented. Now, there's still another problem with this methodology that Brian Hales is promoting. You see, Brian Hales is arguing for a discrete theory of Book of Mormon production. In other words, he's presenting as if he has one theory and one theory only that he is puppy guarding and that all the other theories are themselves discrete theories and in a way hermetically sealed off from each other. Each theory stands or falls on its own. So there's problems with both ends of that issue. 
both on the church's side as well as on the naturalistic theory side. So once again, Brian Hales has separated all the naturalistic theories into discrete theories that don't touch each other. There is no overlap. There are no parts of one theory being used in another theory the way he frames the naturalistic theories. His position is either the Book of Mormon was produced by the pure storytelling theory or the pure automatic theory or the pure Solomon Spaulding theory. You see, Brian Hales in doing this seeks to divide and conquer. But the reality is, is that there's nothing that says that only one of these naturalistic explanations has to account for everything in the Book of Mormon. It is possible that it's 20% of one explanation, 30% of another explanation, 50% of another explanation. And indeed, that only makes sense. And by recognizing this, I can understand then why Brian Hales wants to divide each of these theories up and talk about them as discrete theories instead of admitting the obvious possibility that there could be bits and pieces from the different naturalistic theories that were used in order to produce the Book of Mormon in a naturalistic way. So that's on the naturalistic theory side of the ledger. Let's go to the LDS Church's position because Brian Hales is doing a similar thing there. He is pretending as if there is only one theory for the divine origin of the Book of Mormon that can be defended. He's acting as if that is its own discrete theory. Even though we never talk about it, at least using this methodology, because it's shielded off from criticism, that's his position, at least implicitly. But the reality is that there are as many theories for the supernatural production of the Book of Mormon as there are theories for the naturalistic production of the Book of Mormon. There are apologists who are still maintaining that the Book of Mormon is an authentic record, a historical record of people and events in ancient America, and that Joseph Smith translated this record word for word from what was written on the gold plates. There are also people who maintain, and have at least since B.H. Roberts Day, I believe, that there was a loose translation, that Joseph Smith isn't doing a word-for-word -word translation. Instead, he just has ideas or concepts presented to his mind, which he then has the ability and the freedom to express in his own language that he himself chooses. So the first of those theories is sometimes called a tight translation theory. The second of those theories is called a loose translation theory. There are theories that Joseph Smith used a Urim and Thummim in order to translate the Book of Mormon, there are theories now which are becoming more and more accepted and even appear on the church's website in the Gospel Topics essay about Book of Mormon translation that Joseph Smith used his seer stone in order to translate the Book of Mormon. And he did it by placing it in a hat and placing his face over the hat. There also appears to be a movement in the church to change the word translation relating to the Book of Mormon and replace it gradually with a revelation. So the Book of Mormon is no longer a translation and it no longer has all the problems that viewing it as a translation bring along in its wake. Instead, a movement is afoot, much like with the Book of Abraham, to call it a revelation. Because if it's a revelation disconnected from any text that's being translated, then all those historical problems go out the window and we are able to enjoy our Book of Mormon in peace unassailed by critics pointing out the problems with the anachronisms and all the 19th century material in the text. Of course, the problem with shifting it to being a revelation is that it completely undermines the historical narrative for 200 years and that Joseph Smith himself proclaimed, which is that it was a translation, not a revelation. So getting back to my point, there are as many 
theories for the supernatural production of the Book of Mormon as there are theories for the naturalistic production of the Book of Mormon. And indeed, for that reason, it would be a simple matter to turn the tables on Brian Hales and say, okay, Brian, you pick one of the theories that accounts for the production of the Book of Mormon in a divine way, but you only get to pick one of those theories. And then once you've picked one of those theories, I get to poke holes in it the way you think you're poking holes in the naturalistic theories. But as long as Brian Hales gets to pontificate in a vacuum without any pushback or meaningful dialogue, he is able to have his cake and eat it too, present his methodology and push it forward without anybody saying, okay, what if we put the shoe on the other foot and you can pick whatever theory you like for the divine production of the Book of Mormon and let me do to you what it is you're trying to do to the naturalistic explanations. And what Brian Hales would almost certainly do is what apologists have been doing for a long time, which is saying that as far as tight translation versus loose translation goes, was the Book of Mormon produced with a tight translation or a loose translation? And the savvy apologist will say yes, because parts of it are tight translation and other parts are loose translation. Well, how do you know which are the tight translation parts and which are the loose translation parts? The bottom line is that it's loose translation when there are elements of 19th century Americana in the Book of Mormon. But it's tight translation when we're talking about literary structures, which we are going to try and identify as being ancient or Hebrew in origin. Those structures, such as chiasmus, cannot be accounted for if it is a loose translation, it would lose the structure. If it were a loose translation and Joseph Smith was merely recapitulating ideas that he received in his own language, it would lose the structure of the chiasmus. They would not be accounted for in the text. So those parts have to be tight translation. But other parts where it's clearly 19th century material, well, that's the loose translation part, see? And I, having been an apologist and having made that argument on a number of occasions, am quite satisfied that that's exactly what Brian Hales would do. In fact, he would have to, because if he says it's all tight translation, then we can look at the loose translation parts to disprove that theory. And if he says it's all loose translation, then we can look at the tight translation parts to disprove that theory. So he has to have a combination of both. But this gives the lie to his artificial separation of all of the six naturalistic explanations he's identified. He doesn't allow those to be combined. But in order to do the same thing and defend the Book of Mormon, if we were able to reverse the tables, as I have explained, he would be compelled to take different elements from different theories for the supernatural production of the Book of Mormon in order to defend it. Therefore, it would be inconsistent for Brian Hales to have a problem with taking any of the six naturalistic explanations and taking bits and pieces from those different explanations as needed to account for the naturalistic production of the Book of Mormon. So the bottom line on this issue is that even if Brian could prove that all six of the naturalistic theories are impossible, which he hasn't done, by the way, this is for purposes of argument, okay? Even if Brian could prove that all the naturalistic explanations are impossible, it still doesn't prove it would be impossible for there to be a theory that is a hybrid of different parts of the naturalistic explanations. I also want to add that most apologists will acknowledge that Joseph Smith must have used the King James Bible during his translation of the Book of Mormon in order to account for the King James Version passages that are undeniably present in the text. As far as I know, this theory started with Sidney Sperry quite a number of decades ago, and it has been adopted by most Book of Mormon apologists. 
The presence of the King James Version of the Bible is so obvious and extensive in the Book of Mormon that it cannot be gainsaid or argued against credibly. So as I say, most apologists have adopted the idea that Joseph Smith had to have used the Bible during his translation of the Book of Mormon. But note, as soon as you go there, as soon as you acknowledge that Joseph Smith used a Bible in translating the Book of Mormon, you have introduced a different theory into the pure revelation theory or the pure translation theory. And as soon as you introduce an element of one theory into another theory, you have created a hybrid in order to make the original theory more likely. And that is so because it is definitely less likely to be true if you hold exclusively to the pure translation or pure revelation theory. Let me explain what I mean. If you have Joseph Smith opening the Bible and dictating out of the Bible to his scribe, that accounts for the King James Version passages of Isaiah and Matthew and etc. to appear in the Book of Mormon. That makes sense. But if you're going to hold to a pure revelation theory, then you have to have Joseph Smith dictating off the gold plates passages from Isaiah, passages from Matthew, that somehow, for some reason, and against all the odds, ends up being rendered on these ancient plates of gold in the King James Version, which did not exist until 1611. That's the problem you have if you stick exclusively to the pure revelation theory for the production of the Book of Mormon. And that is why so many apologists have gone to the hybrid theory of, yes, it was translation, yes, it was revelation, except for these lengthy passages from the King James Version. That's where Joseph Smith opened the Bible and read out of it, or dictated out of it, to a scribe. So that's the way these hybrid theories can be created. And yet, even though it is probably likely that Brian Hales himself adheres to this idea of Joseph Smith using the Bible in his translation of the Book of Mormon, thus creating his own hybrid theory, he's still unwilling to allow those who have the naturalistic theories to borrow from other theories in that category in order to make that theory more likely as a hybrid theory. That is called having your cake and eating it too. So hopefully, I've said enough about this methodology now to lay it to rest. It is a flawed methodology from its outset. It does not deliver on what is promised. It invokes the idea of the process of elimination and Sherlock Holmes in order to give it a veneer of validity and a patina of legitimacy. But once we get past the patina and once we get past the veneer, we see that it is unworkable and fundamentally flawed. The only way, once again, the only way it would not be flawed is if you have six theories or seven theories or however many theories about how one thing was accomplished and each of those theories is absolutely discreet and cannot borrow from another theory and if there's no possibility that an additional naturalistic theory could be created once you've got all that together if you can take all of those naturalistic theories and not just show they're unlikely in different degrees, but literally prove that they are impossible. They could not have happened in this or any other universe. If you could do that, then yes, you could show that the Book of Mormon must be divine. But that is not possible, not with this theory at least, and not with this evidence, and not with this apologist. Well, that's about all for tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you like what you hear, at Radio Free Mormon, please consider going to RadioFreeMormon.org today and making a monthly donation. $5 a month is great. $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your donations keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Radio Free Mormon.